Hello and welcome to another episode of the A-Leagues of Our Own podcast presented by The Inner Sanctum. 2023 was an incredible year for the Matildas. They made the semi-finals of a home FIFA World Cup, the biggest addition in the history of the tournament by every measure. They played in front of record crowds across the country, inspiring a generation of young girls and boys to play the beautiful game. The year didn't end the way they would have liked, however. Two losses to Canada leaves a slight bitter taste in the mouth as the Tillies turn their attention towards the 2024 Paris Olympic Games. And whilst going down to the reigning Olympic champions in unfamiliar conditions away from home isn't the end of the world, it's unearthed many familiar criticisms of Tony Gustafsson's stewardship of the national team. My name is Lachlan Avel and here with me to break down the games is Pauletti. Good evening. Good evening. And Chris McPherson. Hello to you. Hello, Lockie. Well, Paletti, the uh, scoreline on aggregate across the two games was 6-0. Uh, of course, that doesn't even go close to telling the full story of what happened in these two games. Selection was, of course, uh, the big talking point across the two, essentially playing a second string 11 and then the best uh, XI in the second game, of course, you know, with Kerr and Mackenzie Arnold absent of, through injury. Interesting decisions, at least, I uh, will say. Yeah, this has been talked about ad nauseum, the lineup. Um, uh, look, I'm of the opinion that you have to take the entire perspective into account. And I know that there's been, look, Andy Harper has been very critical of this. And, you know, he's he's entitled to his opinion, and that's fair enough. And look, was it the best 11 that the Matildas could have put out? Absolutely not. But how many of, how many of our Matildas are injured at the moment? Sam Kerr, Mackenzie Arnold, you know, Holly Mack was supposed to come in, goes down with an ACL uh, literally like not even 24 hours after her selection into the national team. You know, we're talking 6,000 people in horrendous conditions on a synthetic pitch when we're averaging an ACL a week in the A-League women's competition, right? And we've got players that were coming into camp that, you know, are playing 90 minutes twice a week in some cases in Europe for their club teams, do we want to overload them? Do we want them, you know, doing their ACLs on a synthetic pitch? Because, and I'm just going to put a random example out there, if Kyra Cooney-Cross in the midfield does her ACL on a synthetic pitch in front of 6,000 people in, let's face it, a meaningless friendly, we're all criticizing Tony. Why didn't you give her a break? Why didn't you bring in one of these youngsters into camp? You know, we're all going straight on the attack as to, you know, the exact opposite direction to which a lot of people have gone. Was the solution a complete starting 11 that was then rotated completely out for the second game? No, there's probably a middle ground there. But, you know, across these two games, in terms of the selection, the math hasn't really mathed when you listen to what Tony has said. And I think we'll get into that in a little bit more detail a little bit later in the podcast. But yeah, overall, look, I saw this lineup. Um, I was at Good Things, so I didn't get to watch this game live. Uh, I watched the mini-match later. Um, and my immediate thought was, what in the Sydney FC is this lineup with a gleeful smile coming across my face? Because I was excited. Um, and then I watched the mini-match and I'm just like, yeah, you know what? This is probably fair. So in terms of the selection, obviously... If you wanted, if the objective of this camp was to start blending in some of the younger players and getting them up to speed with first team international football, playing a, a second X on one team in the first team in another is probably not the right way to go. But Chris, you could also look at it from a different perspective and say, 
managing the load, thinking that their first team is probably going to be only able to play 90 minutes across the camp. This is your only fixture until some important Olympic qualifiers in February. Perhaps it is good to use all those minutes in the same game so they'll be playing with the same combinations, the same group of players that they will be in those important fixtures. Yeah, look, I'm going to put the devil's advocate hat on and go in that direction, Lockie, and say I can possibly see, and again, I'm being reasonably generous to Tony here, that he was trying to look towards the future and, and try to start to gel some of those future combinations that might be the case should we get a couple more injuries that might be required in some of those lines. He also may have been looking at this and saying, look, even if we take a heavy loss in game one, if we can get a win in game two, which let's be honest, it was a one nil result. So we weren't miles away from taking a result against, you know, one of the top sides in the world here, then then maybe that's something positive. Obviously it didn't turn out that way. It was very interesting to see that he obviously was very reticent to use his bench in the second game. Uh, but again, it, it's, as, as Paletti touched on, it's very much a damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. If someone had got injured, you know, a Mary Fowler or, you know, a Yallop or one of these players, one of these bigger names, and we're going to be in a situation where he's the worst person out there by making these moves that have led to a player now being injured and they miss the Olympic qualifiers. And next thing we know, we're in the same basket as England and we're missing the Olympics. So there's a, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, hindsight being a wonderful thing here. Do I necessarily agree with all the moves that Tony's made? No. Like Paletti said, it seems bizarre that he went from one extreme to the other and there might have been a bit more of a blend attitude to approach to it. But he obviously had a strategy in mind. And I think we've just got to be aware that if Tony continues to do that, and I'm sure Tony's very much aware of this, he knows the game he's in, that he'll live by the sword and die by the sword. And, you know, losses to Uzbekistan in February will probably mean that sword will be wielded. So let's wait and see to the games that matter a little bit more. Um, obviously, you know, the only significant change coming out of this game is that he's obviously, by losing two games to Canada, converted Paletti over to Canada, which we can see by the shirt that he's rocking. <laughs> In theme tonight, Paletti. Yes, uh, my beloved uh, my beloved Quinn jersey. Um, you know, I rocked it with pride throughout the World Cup. Um, I continue to rock it uh, because we love them, you know, and uh, I tweeted shortly after their goal, you know, Quinn scores a little love heart eye emojis uh, and in brackets underneath, please don't take my citizenship away. Um, <laughs> no, look, that that uh, that second game, um, you know, Quinn as a, a bit of a midfielder, defensive midfielder, that doesn't get to score a lot of goals. And so I'm going to take the glee um, in them scoring when I get to because it is definitely one for the Themperers to borrow a term from beyond 90. Um and yeah, and that, that's uh, to go back to Chris's point. That's kind of what I was getting at when I said the math wasn't mathing. Is you go from one extreme to the other, and then you only use one substitution in that second game. Like, where's the load management, which seemed to be the buzzword of the last week? I mean, you definitely felt like the Matildas could have finished that game with a draw, and so maybe there was a logic there. But again, I go back to it. Quotation marks. Meaningless. Friendly. Is it? You know, what's the difference there between a 1-0 loss, a 1-1 draw, and say a 2-0 loss, but you get to rest some players, or a 3-0 loss and you get to rest some more players? And I think that's where the argument for Tony's actions actually come good because, you know, you speak about load management instead of playing, you know, perhaps 60 minutes in each game with blended squads, you're getting your full 90 with the 11 that you intend to put out against Uzbekistan. And it's really considered more of a training session where the performance is so much more important than the result on the scoreboard, right? And yes, it's just the mate made the one sub with Tamika Yallop and Katrina Gori. You'd hope he'd use a few more subs than that in the competitive games. 
Um, you know, they're not going to be able to get through the qualifiers with just 11 players. But that is the argument. And as you say, Platy, meaningless friendly. We don't really care about the result too much. It's about this uh, kind of evolution of play that he's trying to push the Matildas through, really trying to sit on the ball and play through the lines. I believe he said, you know, after the first game, they tried to do that too much in the 5-0 loss and they had to vary it up a bit in the second game, which they did a little bit. But it obviously still wasn't quite clicking. And Chris, you know, they've got the two games against Uzbekistan and then there's no more competitive football until the Olympics. That is not a lot of time. We see this in international football all around the world. You have to make the most use of the time that you do have. You certainly do. But again, that case could be made for Tony to say he's made use of that from a different perspective. Maybe he wasn't focused on the, the three points in inverted commas. Maybe that focus was on using that time to get 90 minutes of combination and cohesion into that first 11, getting also the best part of 90 minutes into some of those younger players. So, again, it's very much the lens that you want to look at this through, isn't it? It's what was his focus and what was his outcome. And, again, we don't know the conversations. He may have had those conversations with the powers that be leading into these games to say, look, the results aren't going to look pretty in terms of the scoreboard necessarily after these two games, but these are the outcomes A, B, C and D that I want to achieve. And I hope for the Matildas and for his sake, that was the conversation that was had beforehand. Because if it wasn't, then again, that guillotine is hanging very nervously by a very thin thread. And again, you know, we've seen some pretty big names in in recent weeks, Paletti, fall by the the wayside in terms of the Olympics. And that presents an opportunity if we can qualify, but it's not much good if we're on the scrap heap with England and Sweden. No, it's not. And I think that kind of goes to your point that there's obviously discussions behind the scene with Football Australia we're never going to hear those discussions. It goes back to the uh, the friendlies window from a couple of years ago, the games against uh, Spain and Portugal. A lot of players had to be rested, you know, the Sam Kerr's of the world. So Tony didn't get much of a choice in who he actually took um, so that, you know, they got a summer off, so to speak, you know, in that window, one of the few, uh, one of the few uh, summer breaks or winter here in Australia where there wasn't an international tournament. So you actually give the players a chance to rest, recuperate, recover. And, you know, Tony was criticised at the time, 7-0 loss. I'm sure when those games were scheduled, they were expecting to test themselves against top-level European opposition in Spain with a full contingent of players, which didn't end up happening. And like I said, criticised at the time. And then we get the Matildas documentary and it turns out the FA were actually very happy with that result because of everything that went on behind the scenes. And so you'd hope that it's a similar situation here. And I know that some people have brought it up. What's going to happen to these players? They're losing 5-0. They're losing 7-0. They're getting thrown to the walls. I've got that Spain. I've got the squad for the Spain game in front of me. And I want you to tell me um, if you recognize any names from this squad that may have been scarred for life, as I've heard some people describe it. Uh, let's see. Let's go through a back five first. Claire Polkinghorn, Courtney Nevin, Charlie Grant, Tamika Yallop, Courtney Vine. Uh, we go to a midfield four now. Um, this is the starting 11. Larissa Crummer, Emily Van Egmond, Claire Wheeler, Katrina Gorey with Emily Gilnick up top. Any of those names ring a bell to anyone? Because, you know, I, I think, I, I yeah, think they've cute. all recovered fine. And then you, you look at the bench. It's the, core, it's the core, core of our first choice team, right? Like Exactly. Yeah. Imagine if we look in, in, in a, you know, a few years' time, yeah, that this second 11 is the same thing. And that's the argument, but only time will tell, right? And that's... That's the question we've got is, do we get there? And again, and we know that I love a 
reference for another sport. And, you know, you go back a few months and the Australian cricket team were absolute losers and absolutely going to be bombed out of the World Cup after they lost two games. And now they are the fated heroes of our nation. We have, we're have we a very fickle sporting nation. Um, we only remember the last results. And, you know, should we get to the semifinals or finals? Imagine we got to the semifinals or finals and we'd won these two games because we'd played a best 11 for the majority of the game and then they ran out of legs because they were fatigued from long seasons. Is there an example of that happening recently? I'm not too sure. Do we remember the quarterfinal and the semifinal of the World Cup? Hmm. I mean, you only have to look to even the group stage game of the tournament. Like, we won the first game against Ireland and people were still out for Tony's head. And I know it got worse from there later in the group stage, but this is one of the things that happens as the team gets more and more popular. There's going to be more and more scrutiny. And as you said earlier, Chris, you know, he's screwed if he does, he's screwed if he doesn't, you know, depending on the results. So uh, it's never going to be easy for TG at the helm of the Matildas for sure. Uh, But I will go back to our uh, resident Canadian on the call, uh, this was very important for another reason as well. Christine Sinclair, her last game of international football, finishes up with 331 games and 190 goals for her country. Absolutely extraordinary numbers. The best international goal scorer of all time, men or women, Pauletti, uh, a true legend of the game, and she was honoured very nice the other night. Yeah, absolutely. You couldn't have asked for a better send-off. And its uh, I don't want to say it seems fitting that the Matildas were there, but it's nice to see a lot of future legends of the game coming through um, that were there to, you know, be part of that historic moment. Um, you know, I don't think you could you could say it any better. True legend of the game, couldn't ask for more, couldn't ask for less. Like, just absolutely, honestly, words are kind of failing me, just trying to describe Sinclair's achievements. It definitely a standout and there's a good chance we'll never see a player the likes of her again, not just from her longevity, um, but from her goal scoring prowess. Um, it should also be noted as well, uh, Sophie Schmidt. Um, it was her uh, final games as well for Canada. Combined ages, the spray age of 75 between the two of them. <laughs> um, honestly, like, it's a big hole that Canada has to fill, and they've started to do that very nicely. We saw that a bit throughout the World Cup. Um, you know, there's players coming through, but you'll never be able to replace, you know, Sinclair at her peak. And, you know, getting to win Olympic gold uh, in Tokyo is definitely, um, you know, a, a good way to send it off. And had, had the World Cup not come around so quickly, Maybe she's already retired just because I definitely think that was part of, you know, her coming to the World Cup was, okay, let's see if we can do it one more. This great Canadian team, we've just won the gold. Obviously, we remember how that ended uh, on a sorted night in Melbourne from a Canadian perspective. Uh, From an Australian perspective, it was pure joy and jubilation. And uh, yeah, to to have seen Christine Sinclair play in Australia um, on a semi-regular, I say semi-regular basis, you know, I've seen... I saw her game uh, in Sydney, uh, the Friendlies. I saw them in Perth. I saw them in Melbourne. Uh, I saw them for both games in Melbourne, actually. So, you know, four of the five times she's played on Australian soil in recent years, you know, I got the pleasure of watching her. And, yeah, it's very clear that, you know, when you were seeing her on the pitch that you were seeing greatness. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think. I, I was having a look at this and obviously taking in both Christine and uh, Sophie as well. I think if my numbers are right, between them, their span over the Canadian team is something in the realm of 41 years. So Christine Schmidt, I think, uh, sorry, Christine uh, Sinclair, I'm getting uh, tongue-tied between the two, made her debut in 2000. So 24 years, in early 2000, 24 years consistently playing for a national side. As Paletti said, we are not going to see 
I'd be very surprised if we saw this sort of longevity. Obviously, the female game has developed. That's not to take anything away from Christine. But also, you know, to see what Sophie's achieved alongside her, you know, over 200 caps as well, 18 and a half years. These are phenomenal women and phenomenal athletes. It's just amazing to think what they've given to the game, what they've given to Canada. And yeah, to see what comes from here for Canada, there's going to be some very large boots to fill. Absolutely. We have a little bit of dub news now. Uh, Chris, we've said many times when uh, Western United have lost games in the A-League, it's been, well, how are they going to go with a coach that's coaching two teams at the same time? That is no longer the case. Uh, Mark Torcaso has resigned from his role at Western United to focus uh, as manager of the Philippine women's national team. Uh, in, in comes Cat Smith. Yeah, a little bit um, somewhat surprising, I suppose. I don't think a lot of people necessarily saw this coming from Mark, but can completely understand it would have been a really thin stretch to be juggling. You know, we've talked about it before. Being a full-time manager of one side is, you know, a pretty phenomenal load in terms of what's required, in terms of all the elements that come together. But trying to manage a national side in a country that you're not based in and being across all of the players, across the, the leagues that they're playing in, especially in a developing nation like the Philippines, you've got some of the players that are emerging and playing in some of the major leagues and you've got other players playing in local leagues there where the coverage wouldn't be quite the same. So trying to be across all of that, it's it's a huge task. And again, Paletti, good to see another one of your campaigns has come to life though in that Cat Smith is back with a clipboard uh, in hand and uh, I'm pretty excited to see uh, what can be done with a, a pretty talented Western United list. Yeah, and I think uh, it can't be understated as well that Cat Smith gets to return to Victoria. Um, so, so she gets to coach a side in her home state. Look, it uh, was obviously very shocking when uh, the Wanderers made the move to get rid of her on the eve of the season. Uh, and then the Brisbane job popped up and I thought, okay, th- this could be a good fit. Obviously, Brisbane had someone in mind when they made that move and it wasn't Cat Smith. I obviously don't think Western United would have been expecting this uh, departure, but they had to move quickly and they got Cat Smith in. I'd be fascinated to see how she goes. She's a very talented coach. Who knows what she can do with a side and a board that actually uh, backs her, you know? Let's uh, let's see what happens there. And from a Mark Torcaso perspective, it, this is only a good thing. The less that we have coaches taking dual roles in women's football, the better. Um, I mean, we've just seen... like like it, It's definitely more the exception to the rule that it's actually successful, you know? We, we, we've just seen... Uh, Ante Juric, you know, was coaching Sydney Olympic men in the NPL, was coaching Sydney FC women, all while maintaining his day job as a teacher, because that's just what the reality of trying to make a living uh, was a couple of years ago when he left the Sydney Olympic job. And so the less that we have to see coaches picking and choosing, doing dual roles, they can pick and choose and survive, you know, on just one job, the better that is especially going forward for not only the development of the international game, but for the development of the club game, just women's football as a whole. And so I'm very much looking forward to seeing how Cat Smith uh, takes the reins at Western United. I was just going to say, I think too, what, what an opportunity of a time, an opportune time for Cat Smith to step into. We're finally, we're hearing allegedly going to see Western United find their real home and we won't have to hear about the uh, travel to their home games. So I think it's a really exciting time for Western United as well. So, a great time, as you say, Paletti, for her to be returning home, taking charge of this team when they can really establish that geographical footprint along with the football they've been putting on the pitch over the last couple of years. Yeah, now I could be wrong on this. I believe that 
the women might still be based out of Caroline Springs. I'm not 100% sure on that. I think there's still a lot of to-be-determined on the fixtures, so they'll probably end up at this new ground for Western United at some point this season. Um, but it also wouldn't surprise me if they see out the season in Caroline Springs and then make the move over next season. Uh, well, in another bit of hiring news, uh, former Sydney FC legend Terry McFlynn has been hired as the Auckland Expansion's Director of Football. Uh, he's wasting no time getting straight to work. Uh, listen here to McFlynn talking to Jason Pine on Newstalk CB's Sports Talk program earlier in the week. Look, I think first and foremost, um, one of the, the key appointments within the, the football department is going to be a head coach. Um, you know, the owner has been, been very vocal in, in the fact that he wants to win. Um, he wants to be successful. He wants to bring success to Auckland. And, um, but, yeah, look, that process is underway. Are we close to appointed? We're probably two to three weeks away, I would say. Um, we'd like to have an appointment done before Christmas. I mean, I hear one Steve Corica is still looking for a job. Um, although I believe the uh, rumours are that he'll be off to Japan. Um, if speculation over the last couple of weeks is to be believed. I mean, he does have strong links to the country. Uh, Patrick Casnorbo has formally departed Trois, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, if any of our French listeners want to correct me on that, by all means. You know, I, I believe pace and power um, translates a little bit uh, a little bit better from English to Kiwi um, <laughs> than it does from English to French. You know, I mean, they could go completely left field, I mean, Terry McFlynn did have strong links to the glory. Could Ruben Zadkovic be an option? And if there's one thing that we know about uh, Bill Foley and his sports group, uh, they're not afraid to spend money. Now, I'm sure there will be a lot of budgetary uh, requirements put on to uh, this Auckland team that we necessarily uh, we haven't necessarily seen with uh, the likes of Vegas Golden Knights or you know Bournemouth. I imagine the purse strings will be a little bit looser if they think that they have their coach identified. If it's a case of a few hundred thousand dollars, I don't think Bill Foley will have any issues opening the checkbook to get the coach that they want. And Chris, it's interesting because there's been two kind of narratives around like Bill Foley has talked about wanting to connect with the community and that might lead to, you know, picking someone local, but obviously they do want to win as well. And Patrick Kisnorbo, you know, potentially could have, you know, seven, eight months off, you know, the touchline, so to speak, uh, away from his job in France, but he's a proven winner in the A-Leagues and could provide those instant results. He certainly is. It's going to be very much down to what Foley and his group want to do in terms of, as Paletti touched on, do they want to open the purse strings if they've got the right person? And there'll be a lot of fans that might say, well, because Norbo was, you know, somewhat handed, you know, the reins at a city group club and that created some opportunity for him. But there's no doubting what he's done. Um, if they want to connect with the community, there's been talk of Greenacre, Chris Greenacre, who's one of the assistant coaches at Wellington, might be a target as well. I know that was certainly a conversation a few weeks ago uh, when Foley was first handed the keys to this new franchise. So I, I would suggest if they're not 100% set on you know, targeting someone and spending that money, that that might be the way they go. Or if they miss out on that target, they try and chase early up. But you'd certainly think with Foley and the, and the I guess, the track record he's got with success, when you look at the Golden Knights, he won't be afraid if he's got the right person in mind to have a crack at them. But then again, I think if he misses out on that person, I don't think they'll be taking big swings at multiple people. Um, I think I, I wouldn't be surprised if you if hear a story, if they miss out on whoever that target is that they determine in the coming weeks if Green, Chris Greenacres quickly snapped up after that as their coach to step in and take the reins and they maybe utilise some of that money a bit more on the squad. I'm going to throw a left-field name out here. Um, ben Khan. Now, he has, in the last two months, has signed with Brisbane Raw as their youth technical director. 
You know, he's done a lot of work in NPL Victoria. He's done a lot of work in NPL Queensland. His name is constantly getting thrown out there when coaches depart for various reasons. He's clearly talented. Is an A-League men's head coaching role enough to get him away from a job he's just gotten settled in that? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you feel to leverage him out of that, they probably have to pay him a little bit more than when he was on the market. And do they want to pay a little bit more as a fledgling franchise? Because imagine if, if it comes out, they pay a little bit more and they're not successful immediately. They'll be absolutely hounded by a new fan base and, and all and sundry outside of them. So it would be a gamble. But again, it's a, it's a big opportunity for someone who undoubtedly has a bright coaching future from what we've seen from him already. Yeah, and a little bit of uh, breaking news as well. Another bit, uh, another coach, sorry, who is now a free agent is Kevin Musket. Uh, just announced that he's resigning from Yokohama F Marinos in Japan. But he'll be moving on. Obviously, his sights will probably be set somewhere in Europe uh, rather than Auckland. But uh, I don't know, maybe one of those Aussies like Steve Karaka, you mentioned he's been getting interest from Japan. Maybe uh, Yokohama will go for the Aussie hat trick. Yeah, it could, it could be interesting to see. Obviously, as Paletti mentioned before, there's some heavy ties there. Uh, it would be interesting to see Karaka after being sacked step over there. But there's nothing to say he couldn't. Yeah, that's 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 got me a little bit rattled, I'm going to be honest, Lockie, because you've absolutely broken it. I, mean, <laughs> I expect these things from Paletti, no offense, but uh, you've, kept, <laughs> you, you've kept that one up your sleeve. Uh, but it's breaking news right now. By the time we release the podcast, not so much, but that's that's huge. And yeah, it opens up a lot of permutations in both directions, doesn't it? Yeah, not going to lie, when I saw Kevin Musket's name on the, on the run sheet here, I'm like, Okay, has Lockie just gone for something completely left field as a discussion point <laughs> to try to, you know, clip for the Twitter metrics? And then it's like, oh, no, 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 he's actually announced that he's resigning from Yokohama. And it was just a good segue. That's all it was. Maybe Kevin Musket's going to do the Andrew Hould, announce that he's going to go overseas and then end up back in Australia or in the A-Leagues when he left the Newcastle Jets. Um, but anyway, I highly doubt that. But, uh, geez, that'd be some... Imagine the coup if Foley managed to throw the absolute kitchen sink and get Kevin Musket back to launch the new franchise. That would be huge. I wonder if uh, Arthur Pappas as well could be in with a shout. I know he's just gone to Burium recently, but he was assistant under Ange for a little while at Yokohama, so there's ties there. Uh, if there was another Aussie going to uh, the Marinos, I think that would probably be my best bet. You know, there's probably NPL coaches galore as well that um, could be targeted. But I mean, Ben Khan's definitely the name that stands out. The exciting news is Terry McFlynn's going to uh, tell us before Christmas so we don't have to hold our breath too long. That's good. Yes, absolutely. And then, you know, part of being expansion team as well, the head coach, you want to get them in early, so they have plenty of time to assemble their team, get their plans set for the new season so they can come in hot, absolutely. Uh, that will do for this episode of the A-Leagues of Our Own podcast. Paletti, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And Chris McPherson, thank you. Thanks as always, Lockie. We'll be back on Tuesday for our A-League review on the weekend. Thank you all for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.